Welcome to Great Plains Anywhere, a Paul A. Olson lecture from the Center for Great Plains Studies at the University of Nebraska. In this episode, we spoke with Dr. David Vail, Associate Professor of History at the University of Nebraska at Kearney, who specializes in environmental and agricultural history, history of science, technology and medicine, and public history. In this interview, Dr. Vail talks about his book on the history of agricultural chemicals and dives into his new work looking at the interplay between culture, politics, and agriculture in the Great Plains during the Cold War era. And now a special note from Margaret Hiddle, an Ishinabe, Assistant Professor of History and Ethnic Studies at UNL and Center for Great Plains Studies Board of Governors member. On behalf of the Center for Great Plains Studies, I would like to begin by acknowledging that the University of Nebraska is a land-grant institution with campuses and programs on the past, present, and future homelands of the Pawnee, Ponca, Oto, Missouri, Omaha, Lakota, Dakota, Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Kaw peoples, as well as the relocated Ho-Chunk, Iowa, and Sac and Fox peoples. Please take a moment to consider the legacies of more than 150 years of displacement, violence, settlement, and survival that bring us here today. This acknowledgement and the centering of Indigenous peoples is a start as we move forward together for the next 150 years. Well, um, I'm David Vale, and I uh, teach history at the University of Nebraska at Kearney. I'm an associate professor there. Um, I specialize in environmental history, agricultural history, science and medicine, although I also do a lot with the Great Plains. Um, so I'm excited to be here at the Center for Great Plains Studies. Dr. Vale, can you tell us about your first book? In that book, what I'm trying to do is explore a lot of different intersections, um, some of them agricultural science, some of them technology, some of them um, sort of perceptions of region and regional influence. And so the overlays of environment, uh, science, local knowledge, and um, technological expertise. All of that's happening in the Great Plains when it comes to pesticides and um, agricultural aviation in particular after 1945. So that's part of what the book is trying to look at those intersections. Um, what happens when pesticides come on the scene? Most, most historians and most people, especially who are in agriculture, kind of know that um, the, you know, they took the line that Dow Chemical and other chemical companies sort of said, like, if some works, more must be better. Um, but uh, in the Great Plains, at least, um, farmers and even the applicators themselves had real reservations early on um, about the potency, about the application effectiveness, um, and, and then sort of like the rules of the game, and the game being um, aerial spraying in particular. So I tried to get into that as well um, before the Rachel Carson era and then post-Rachel Carson era, which is 1962 is when Silent Spring comes out. How did you get interested in agricultural history? I guess why I got interested in agricultural history to begin with um, has partially to do with how I grew up, which I did not grow up in the Great Plains, everyone. Um, but but I, I've come to love this place, and it's a really important place for a lot of different reasons. Um, I grew up in Oregon, so the Pacific Northwest, 
and um, I grew up in a you know a semi I would say sort of the in between an urban sort of place and a rural place, um, not quite suburbia, but it's sort of in between. Thinking back now, it's a good question, I guess, because so much of what we do as historians um, connect to where we are. Um, in terms of place, not just ideas, um, but it has, I think at least, it has a lot to do, my questions and my interests have a lot to do, how I teach that and, and how I think about that, it has a lot to do with how I grew up, where I did, our journeys from place to place. Um, and if that's true for me, I always tell my students that can be true for them too. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, environment and agriculture and the knowledge um, and, and technologies involved with that history, th those are all interconnected. It's not like one or the other. And so um, region comes into play. And, and I think for me, the Great Plains is a really important place to seal that happening a lot as well. Part of what I love about the Great Plains and studying the history of, an agri of agriculture and environment here is that there's a real... Um, I think important intersection of STEM and humanities that happens here a lot. Um, and the institutions and organizations that I've been a part of, including the center, but Humanities Nebraska is another one, just thinking about it, um, that really make an effort to reveal that and to explore those relationships. And that's really important going forward with things like climate change. Um, how, so, so what does it mean, right? Uh, one of the questions my, my work, not just chemical lands, but my new work that I'm working, that I'm pursuing now, you know, what does it mean um, in terms of a production landscape and conservation and ideas about that? Um, and then how do we address, how does the um, land use of the past um, and those relationships that I've been describing how, how do those shape where we go when we talk about climate change? Um, it's easy to look at a place like Yellowstone or Yosemite and say, and, or in a lot of places in the national park system, and say something like, yeah, I'm all, I'm all in for preservation or I'm all in for this sort of approach. Um, but it's much harder to like, figure out and see um, who, what people think about conservation, how they use the land, what is, but then also we know um, through a lot of different ways that once you start using the land, it changes things, right? And part, part of chemical lands and this new work addresses that, right? Like you, put, you unleash chemicals onto the landscape for a certain purpose, you have a mindset and a, and a mindfulness that's different than other parts of the country that are, that's easier to sort of put in a corner. Um, by the way, like one of the criticisms uh, that ag pilots and farmers had early on against Rachel Carson was not that she was raising warnings necessarily about the chemicals they were using. It was more about they were saying, they, they thought that what they were doing was not like what the southern pilots were doing, which that's the main case that she's using in Silent, Silent Spring, which is obvious why she would. Um, but anyway, so... So that, that's very complicated, and, it's, and those relationships are complex, and the attitudes and mentalities aren't clear-cut. That's A, but then B, there's, a, there's an issue with, um, you know, where do we go from here? What happens when the land is permanently changed? So the chemicals permanently change what this land can do in the Great Plains and what it can't. Um, and it also creates new dangers that go well beyond the target fields um, or the intentions of the sprayers or the users or the, the farmers or ranchers.
adventurers. And regardless of their political mindset about those things, that's still the reality. Those are the ecological realities. And so I guess my, th- my hope is that my work can contribute to where we go from here, um, acknowledging the realities of those things, but also how can we prepare for a climate change world that we're, I believe, at least, we're currently living in. The title of my new book is Vulnerable Harvest, Risk and Resiliency in the Cold War Great Plains. And so it's, it's, um, part of it is emerging from, I guess, all the stuff I had to kind of leave out of chemical lands. There's, this is always the, the, the problem with historians that I, I think we all face. Like, you have all this uh, material that you just can't, for a lot of different reasons, put in the book that you're currently writing. But then, I, you know, I don't know about all of you, but like for me, I'll get super distracted about that stuff I can't put in the current work. And so I need some sort of uh, release valve for that. So I just put it to the side and think, okay, um, this doesn't quite fit, and that's okay, A, and B, um, I will hopefully get back to it, or that will become a new project. Um, and so that's kind of what happened. Um, the, it, it, the, the book tries to um, get at the Cold War Great Plains. I think that that is um, a new angle that a lot of historians of the Cold War sort of ha- haven't looked at yet. Um, and the Great Plains plays a huge role in Cold War history, and it hasn't really been addressed, at least in my view, um, the region as it should. Uh, some have sort of around like civil defense um, and missile silos and all of that, which everyone who lives in Nebraska knows about this probably. Um, but I, I, I want to see the region play a more prominent role in the Cold War history that we know, that we don't. Um, and again, um, at least in my work and the groups that I'm dealing with, are, are openly talking about fears of climate change. They're not quite using that term, okay? But, they, but they're really worried about it. And they're really worried about it for a lot of reasons that are, some of that are similar and some that are distinct to the Cold War. Like, for example, in order to win the Cold War, we can't have weather and climate and, and those sorts of environmental relationships um, be unpredictable. We need them more predictable. So how do we track that? And what does it mean if it's adding new risk to our fields? Because food is part of the weapons of the Cold War um, in this moment. So, um, so yes, they have a kind of a different mindset maybe about why they're asking the same questions we're asking now about and worried about now in terms of climate change. But they're asking them, and I think that's important. Part of it is thinking about risk and resiliency, those concepts that are emerging in, in a certain form um, in terms of environment and agriculture and agricultural science in the late 40s, um, throughout the 50s, and the 1960s. Um, and they're sort of pairing with an idea about climate change and the ultimately the green revolution of food production. Um, and so what we're really talking about, too, is food security, which is another part of what the new book is trying to get at. Um, a lot of scholars have looked at food, the history of food security from what I would argue is kind of the top-down or foreign policy sort of specific, which makes sense. Um, but very few um, have looked at like w- what contributions and influence does a region have up 
And so um, I'm, the book is trying to get at that, too, because a lot of these conversations and debates happening at the council level ultimately filter or trickle up to food security policy abroad. Um, and so that that's part of what the book's trying to do. The other part is sort of looking at abundance, scarcity, food security, and what that what does that all mean in sort of this context and in this region. You know, reviewing conversations that all of these different um, interest groups are having in a meeting, an annual meeting that, I don't know, I mean, with everything currently going on right now, you would not expect that. You would not expect them to have these, like, these very um, dynamic conversations, and and what I like about the era is that all of that's recorded. <laughs> um, so in a typical history conference, you do not uh, have someone transcribing the presentations and the audience response now, but then they did, and so I have like the official presentations and the audience response, and like unexpected critiques from different interest groups that you would think would be aligned with a certain point, or, and actually they're not. Um, all that to say, you know, what happens when ideas about environmental conservation or agricultural land use in these kind of contexts, when we talk about risk um, and how do we make the land resilient and for, for whom and for what, um, what happens when, like, typical or, or um, you know, sort of common ideas about politics and the political view of environment and agricultural production, what happens when those things cross political lines um, and, and that they can? Um, and, you know, for me, that, that helps sort of, that, that's a tent peg almost of, like, well, if they can in this era, when we know different things about this era, like McCarthyism, for example, or, you know, how, how powerful a Cold War culture in the United States was about continuity and community, but yet you have these groups sort of arguing that you would think would be on the same side, but they're not. Um, what does that all mean for us? I think that that helps us see a path forward that isn't so, so binary. Um, that's just sort of thinking about that right now. Um, so I, that's, that's another part of what my, I hope my book does, is that it, it, it shows um, examples of how um, complex and also these communities could be um, in, a, in a productive way. Right? That it's not just a given that if you ha- hold this political view, therefore you will do this, this, and this. Um, and, you know, the, the ongoing debates about what land means and how land is used and um, how, how does one preserve that um, comes sort of this middle ground um, from these people who have very different experiences with land use or how they're thinking about it. Um, but they kind of come to the same conclusion. And so I think that's a, really, that's a really valuable thing to read about and to think about for today. So we're talking a lot about human risk and resiliency and cultural views of that, and that's all interesting and important. But what about non-humans in the Great Plains? And so my, I hope this book can explore how plants create their own, how the plants and, or we'll just say non-humans, because I also like noxious weeds, and I don't care who knows it, Okay, so, but in all seriousness, like, what, you know, 
how does risk and resiliency exist in the non-human world? So how do plants perceive risk to themselves, right? And then how do they, uh, how do they build a resiliency um, against that? Um, and that's happening in the fields with the, with the human counterparts also thinking about the same thing, right? Um, and, and oftentimes, like just with chemicals, for example, the um, chemicals are sort of a human technological response to risk for a certain resiliency conclusion. Um, the plants, like noxious weeds in particular, this is just a, an example, right? But like they respond... Um, to that technology uh, by employing their own risk analysis and creating and and adapting to a resiliency to that same technology. So if that makes sense. Um, So it's just, so so I want to bring that into the book as well. Um, And I think that's also a use, uh, hopefully a a useful part of the the story that I'm telling. One other thing I would say is that um, the intersections of like Cold War politics and how that manifests in the land landscape here in like fields um, here in the Great Plains in the region, um, the, the politics looks differently when it when you take away the the arguments about you know policy or or foreign foreign engagement or whatever like the, the things that we're most familiar with the ideas and histories we're kind of more familiar with in the Cold War like how does that manifest in the field itself well I think it, it manifests so resiliency is we're talking about a con, not a conflation but kind of a an intersection maybe of environment agricultural science uh, what uh, farmers are trying to produce in this era um, and w- like reco- like a landscape recovery for them means something different than f- what it means for a scientist or, or or an ecologist. If people can talk about it in similar but not the same ways, then that also gives us a place to 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 find a common space to go forward. The use of pesticides and new ways to deploy them also requires a whole bunch of new things that um, create more of a dependency to those technologies. You, they, the, the, more they, the more they use those and certain advantages economically and otherwise, but then they also have to know more. They're on the hook for more legally, and, and that just builds and builds. So my point, I guess, is that the technologies like pesticides go out and they do their own thing. They change the land. They change what the land can do and what it can't. They change human mentalities about the poison, what's poisonous, what's not, what's risky, what's not. Um, how that all fits together um, is based on what the pesticides are doing, not as, oh, at least as much as what the human pilots or the farmers or, or whomever want them to, to achieve. Um, and so I try to look at that in that book, but also in my new book, sort of those relationships that are ongoing. And this is, this is why something like climate change is complicated. Um, intentions, realities, all of those things come into play um, and with an, an ecological relationships and a larger world that kind of does its own thing. Um, and the, the results are the results. Um, and so you, and the science is the science, and it's ongoing. So you, you know, you're sort of following that where you, we, I think at least you have to follow it where it takes you, not where you necessarily want it to go. Um, 
and so too with this history. But it's just fascinating to see just how potent pesticides are from 1945 on, not just in the ways we kind of think about, um, but unexpected ways. And it creates new uncertainty. It, it, so it resolves certain risks and uncertainties, but then introduces a whole new set of them um, going forward. And uh, an, another important point to make about this, because now you got me back on chemicals again, but, um, but the, the other point to this, I guess, is um, that as they, they restricted and ultimately made DDT illegal, new toxic, more toxic alternatives emerge. So that's an un like part of being an environmental historian and an agricultural historian that's really important, I think, is exploring unintentional and unexpected consequences, right? So making DDT illegal um, uh, uh, resolved certain risks and problems that DDT presented in ecosystems and, and other things, but then but then it also un unintentionally released or encouraged the release of new toxic, more potent alternatives um, and created a politics uh, that became much more polarized um, around this. The unexpected part, um, the unintentional parts are also important. What is something about the history of agriculture on the Great Plains that would surprise people? Well, I just think that the people and the place and the longer history of, of how the land was, um, uh, was used um, and abused uh, is much more diverse and, and complicated uh, than you see traveling I-80. Um, and so explore, explore Nebraska, explore the Great Plains off of the interstates, certainly, but also, um, yeah, the diversity of what you see isn't necessarily represented if you just, you know, go by in, in your car. I just always like to say thank you um, for all that you do at, at the center here. Um, it's really important work. Everyone should know the work, um, and, and I highly encourage everyone to support it. Um, I'm really thankful to be part of a larger system that, that encourages this type of work, so thank you. We'd like to thank Dr. Vale for speaking with us today. Find all of our short Great Plains talks and interviews as videos and podcasts at go.unl.edu slash gplectures.